Well, let's go to 1 Samuel tonight in chapter 13. 1 Samuel and chapter number 13, and we're going to look at several uh, places here in chapters 13 and 14 tonight, but we'll start in chapter 13 and get a little background uh, to this event, starting in verse number 1. 1 Samuel chapter 13, and beginning with verse 1. The Bible says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also was had in abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward from Beth-Avon. The nation of Israel and their army, as this chapter opens, finds themselves in a battle that humanly is impossible to win. Israel is under the command of Saul. Saul was king. He was a man who, the Bible says, stood head and shoulders above every man in Israel. He was a physically dominant individual. He was also a man of war from his youth. So Saul was well-skilled and well-versed in warfare. And these 3,000 men that he has placed together in his army are no doubt pretty well-trained. The problem is, according to verse 5, the other side, the Philistine side, has 30,000 chariots. They have 6,000 horsemen. And they have foot soldiers, and the Bible uses the term like the sand of the sea, which is a, a term that's used in the Bible similarly to the stars of the sky. And in other words, an innumerable number. So here's Israel. They've got 3,000 soldiers, but the other side has 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and foot soldiers you can't even number. Now that's a battle you can't win humanly, right? And sometimes in our life, we're going to face some things where we think, Man, we might as well wave the white flag. There is no way. There's no way that I can win this battle. It might be a personal temptation. It might be a financial struggle. It might be a health dilemma. It could be a relational situation. We come to places in our life where we think, there's nothing that can be done. I have no resources. I have nothing in myself that can win this battle. But let's cheat a little bit. Let's read ahead in the story. Go to chapter 14. And look at verse number 6. And Jonathan, now Jonathan was Saul's son. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there's no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Isn't that a great verse? Jonathan says, Hey, I suppose maybe in a sense he was thinking, what do we have to lose? I mean, we're outnumbered. We, we, we can't win this battle on our own. But, hey, why don't we step out by faith and see what God can do? God's not restricted. 
God, God isn't limited by how many soldiers we have or the situation of the battle. God may work for us. Boy, aren't you glad that when we face certain situations in our life, we always have a God who can do far more than we can ever anticipate, ask, or think, as he says in Ephesians 3 and verse 20. We have a God that can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Why? Because with God, nothing is impossible. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thy stretched arm, and there's nothing too hard for thee. Now, in this war that's going to go on here in chapters 13 and 14 between the Israelites and the Philistines, I see four different kinds of soldiers in Israel's army. And the reason I notice them is because I notice them in my own life. Oftentimes, I take the characteristic of one of these groups of soldiers. And as I work with Christians around the world, I, I think about the same thing when I meet people. I think, you know what, you're in the camp of this particular soldier. So let's examine them tonight because we need to be the right kind of soldier for Jesus Christ. So the first group we see is back in chapter 13. Let's look at verses 6 and 7 following our text. And the first group of soldiers we find are the fearful. In verse number 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. The fearful. Now, fear is a human emotion. If we went around this room tonight and we were all honest, there are some things that all of us fear. We have certain fears. I don't like snakes. Now, I know many snakes are, are harmless, and, and people say, well, that's not a poisonous snake. Well, I'm not going to hang around long enough to find out if it's poisonous or not. I just don't like snakes. I see a snake, I want to go the other way. I don't like snakes. Maybe you're afraid of heights. Maybe you don't like closed-in spaces. Uh, maybe you have a fear of, of standing up in front of people. There are a thousand fears that could come into our life. And by the way, sometimes fear is a good thing. Sometimes fear gives us caution. It gives us discernment. It gives us prudence, so the Bible word would be. We see a situation, we think, oh, that doesn't look good. Well, I don't think I better go in there. Or, or I don't think I want to be with that person. That doesn't look right. You know, fear sometimes can be a help to us. But the devil loves to prey on our fears. It's interesting, in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, God says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, the devil is not a roaring lion, okay? The Bible says he's as a roaring lion. So God's using a metaphor here, a type of speech, we could say. Now, I don't know everything there is to know about lions, but I know this, when they're hungry, they don't roar. When a lion is hungry and ready to devour, he's very quiet. In other words, he gets down in the long grass, he tries to hide. 
and he slithers, he, he kind of slinks up toward maybe a herd of animals of some kind, and he, he, he comes through that grass unnoticed very quietly, and he sneaks up on that herd until one of them begins to drift away, or maybe a wounded one exposes himself, and then he pounces and devours. A lion roars to intimidate. And the devil is as a roaring lion. He loves to intimidate us. Sometimes he roars the fear of family. I'm sure pastor would vouch for this. I've noticed over the course of my ministry that oftentimes people, when they get saved, or they decide, I'm going to start living for God, oftentimes it's their family that resists them the most. I don't know why it is. You'd think when, when someone gets their life changed and right with God and wants to be in church and wants to serve God, that their family would be saying, way to go. But oftentimes their family are like, oh, you're not going to join a religious cult, are you? I mean, you're not going to be one of those holy joes or something, are you? And their family begins to resist them. And the devil roars that fear of, well, my family. But aren't you glad that the Bible says there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother? I'm glad Psalm 2710 is in the Bible. When my father and mother forsook me, then the Lord took me up. Sometimes the devil roars the fear of friends. We get intimidated by that fear of friends. We wonder, will our friends still be our friends if we strongly serve the Lord? Will, will they make fun of us if, if, if we try to live right? But again, the Bible says the fear of man bringeth a snare. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made safe. Many seek the ruler's favor, but every man's judgment comes from the Lord. You're not going to stand one day before your friends. You're going to stand before God. Your friends can laugh you out of heaven, but they can't laugh you out of hell. Someone might laugh at you and keep you from getting saved. And as a result, laugh you out of heaven. But nobody's going to laugh you out of hell. The fear of friends. Sometimes the devil roars the fear of finances. We think, oh, you know, if I serve God, I'm never going to have anything. I'm never going to be happy. I'm never, I'm never going to enjoy life. I'm not going to have the things I, I know will make me happy. And the devil loves to, to paint this picture, you know, that if you serve God, you're going to be miserable. If you serve me, you're going to have fun. I remember when I was a kid, and I'd hear preachers talk about giving your life to God and, and surrendering your life to the Lord. I had the thought that if I do that, the Lord will probably call me to the mission field. And it'll probably be the country of Africa. And I'll have to live in a mud hut and, and eat boiled baboon for supper. And snakes will crawl over my body while I sleep. And my neighbors will boil things in pots like Caucasian missionaries, you know. And, and I thought, I don't want to do that. I mean, I, I want to be happy. I want to drive a car. I want to live in America. I want, I, I want to have some things. You know, I, don't, I don't want to serve God. And the devil kind of paints this picture between misery or pleasure. But you know what? That's not the choice at all. The choice is between pleasure and pleasure. Now, what we have to decide is how long we want the pleasure to last. Because there's pleasure in sin for a season. But God says, at my right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So, see, it's not a matter. The devil says, oh, you know, if you serve God, you'll never be happy. You won't have any fun. You're going to miss out on something. Well, maybe temporarily you're going to miss out on somebody that's ruining their life in some sinful practice. 
But right now, it may seem like a bad choice, but hey, you're going to have pleasure forever when you serve God. The fear of, of, of finances or, or fame or those kinds of things. Some people, the devil roars the fear of failure. Has the devil ever told you, what do you, what do you think you're doing? You're going to church now? Oh, that's a joke. I mean, if people only knew what you used to do. I mean, sometimes even in our Christian life, the, the, the devil crawls up on our shoulder and he says, uh, you're singing these songs if people only know what you were thinking about earlier today, right? And the devil loves to throw our past up in our face. You know why the devil loves to rattle the skeletons of our past in our life? Because he has no future to talk to us about. The devil only deals with the past. That's all he's got. You know what Paul said? Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God which is in Christ Jesus. Do you know that most of your Bible was written by murderers? Moses was a murderer. He killed a guy in Exodus chapter 2. David was a murderer. The blood of Uriah was on David's hands. The apostle Paul was a murderer. Prior to his salvation, there's no doubt in, in Acts chapter uh, 7 that Saul of Tarsus, he was the guy that shed the blood of Stephen. And some people believe that Saul probably executed over 2,000 Christians prior to his conversion. Yet God changed their lives and used those three men to write the bulk of our scriptures. See, the devil loves to say, well, you can't do that. You can't be a good Christian. You can't. You, you could never uh, witness to somebody. You could never get victory in your life. Listen, you, you, the devil's a liar. The devil loves to roar fear into our life. But remember something. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. In Isaiah 41 and verse 10, God says, Fear not, I am with thee. Be not dismayed. I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Why? Because 1 John 4, 18 says, There's no fear in love. For perfect love, the only one who has perfect love is God. Perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. There's no fear in love. Here were the fearful. What do you fear giving to God tonight? What do you fear doing for God tonight? Oh, listen, here were the fearful. But notice a second group of soldiers. I like to call them the flabby. Now, now don't worry, we're not going to talk about your diet or anything like that. But, but go to chapter 14 and look at verse number 2. Same battle, we're still in the battle. Verse 2, and Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. Now, here's Saul. He is the guy who stands head and shoulders above every guy in Israel. He's this man of war from his youth. But in the middle of this battle with the Philistines, he's over in Migron, sitting under a pomegranate tree, sipping iced tea with 600 of his men. The flabby. You know, I meet a lot of people in our churches, they love the church. And they're all for the church. They want the church to do well. They want the church to pay its bills. They want the church to win souls. They want the youth group to be vibrant. They want the choir, the music to be great. They, they, they have no problem with the church. They love the church. They want the church to be successful. But don't ask them to do anything. 
You know, they, they've decided their Christianity is a spectator sport. I'm just here to watch. Friend, God didn't save us to sit, soak, and sour. He saved us to stand, to strive, and to serve. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler. I find those words interesting in the Old Testament there in Proverbs 6 because those same three words are used to describe the pastor in the New Testament. Guide, overseer, ruler. The ants don't have a pastor. They don't have somebody every Sunday morning, all right, ants, come on, we've got to get more food in here. Winter's coming. They don't have somebody like that. They know by instinct winter's coming, and they've got to be busy. So they don't have a guide, overseer, ruler, but they provide their meat in the summer. They gather their food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou rise out of thy sleep? Get a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. Solomon said, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there's no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. We must work, for the night is coming. So many today have just decided, well, you know, let someone else do the work. Let someone else serve. I've done my part, whatever. I was in Douglas, Wyoming, and there was, a, there was a retirement center right across the street from the church. A man in the church, probably in his 50s or so, he would do a service over there every Sunday afternoon. Well, that week during the revival, he thought, you know, if I came early, I could go over there and get some of those folks and, and bring them across the street in their wheelchair and have them come to the revival. They're well enough to come. So he got permission to do that, and every night he'd go over there and he'd get some of them in their wheelchair, get them dressed up a little bit, and bring them across that street. It was a blessing. Well, one night, I think it was a Tuesday night, he brought a lady, and honestly, she did not look very old. I, I, I think she might have been in her 50s. Surely not old enough to be in a restaurant, but she was, she was paralyzed from at least her waist down. I don't really know all the, all the situation there, but, but uh, she's in this wheelchair. Well, he brought her across, set her in the middle aisle next to he and his wife, and, and she listened. And, and at the invitation time, she looked up at him and she said, I want to go up there. So he, he stepped out and he unlocked her wheelchair, the brake, and he, he wheeled her forward. She got up front and she said to the pastor, I need to be saved. Well, the pastor's wife came and led her to Christ. The next night, she came back and uh, listened again there in the middle aisle. And, and when the service was over, as she came by, the pastor and I we were standing by the door. She came by, and she shook my hand, and she shook the pastor's hand, and she said, Pastor, I got saved last night. And he said, I know you did. I'm so happy for you. She said, Pastor, now that I'm saved, I need to get baptized. He said, would, she said, would you baptize me? And uh, he said, well, absolutely. We'd be honored to. He said, uh, the way we do it here is we, we, we like our deacons, a couple of our deacons, to hear your testimony, just how you got saved last night. And we can do that this coming Sunday night. You could come and we'd get you here a little bit early and tell your testimony. And then he said, what I'll do is I'll get my men to help me and we'll carry you down into the water in your wheelchair and we'll baptize you and your wheelchair. How would that be? She got, oh, that would be wonderful. Then she said, now, Pastor, when I get baptized, I'll be a member of the church, and I want to work in the nursery. And I'm looking at her thinking, work in the nursery? In a wheelchair? I mean, I know people that are in wheelchairs from working in the nursery. 
<laughs> and I guess the pastor had kind of the same shocked expression on his face, and she said, you don't think I'm too decrepit, do you? He said, oh, no, no, we'll get you in there. Now, don't you love that? Listen, if all that lady had done was get saved, we would have been rejoicing. If all she did was got saved and never wanted to take another step in her Christian life, that would have been a wonderful thing. But you see, when God saves us, when God comes into our life, there's a desire there to serve. And we all don't do the same thing. We don't all have the same talent. We don't all have the same amount of time. But God has given a place for each of us to serve in the local church. If you don't believe that, ask pastor. He'll find a spot for you. We're here to serve. And here we're the flabby. But then I see a third group. I call them the fickle. Look over in chapter 14 and verse 21. Now, I promise we'll catch all this up in a minute. But look at verse 21 and let me explain it. It says, moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. Now, here's what was happening, and I promise we'll catch this up in a minute. Some of the Israelite soldiers, they looked at that Philistine army and they said, you know what, if you can't beat them, join them. So they went AWOL. They, they, they left Israel's army and they went over and joined the Philistines. But now at the end of chapter 14, God is giving the victory to the Israelites. And so those guys who had defected, they come back over to the Israelite side. Fickle. Fair weather fans. Right? Uh, I, I meet sports fans, you know, if their team's going good, oh, yeah, I've always been a Laker fan. Oh, yeah, I love the Lakers. The Lakers start losing. Nah, I hate the Lakers. Yeah. More of a Clippers fan myself. You know what I mean? It's amazing how quickly we change. If our team is doing well, oh, yeah, man, that's my team. If they start losing, oh, they're terrible. I, I don't even watch it, you know? Fairweather fans. You know, that, that kind of bleeds over into the church sometimes. Things are going good. Oh, yeah, we're on board. Praise the Lord. A little trouble comes. A couple of losses. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Paul told Timothy, be instant in season, out of season. In other words, Timothy, sometimes it's going to be easy to serve. Sometimes it's not going to be easy. But you be instant in both. You be ready to serve in both. I love what Paul said to the Philippian church in chapter 2, verse 12. He said, wherefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Hey, does pastor have to know that you're serving for you to serve? Does somebody have to notice it? Does somebody have to watch you in order for you to, to serve? Or, or if nobody sees it, there's no applause, or there's no thank you, well, I'm not interested. Oh, listen, we need to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Here were the, the fickle. You know what? God does not design Christians to be thermometers. You can take a thermometer, hang it on the wall. You don't need to plug it in. You don't need a battery. Just hang it on the wall. And you know what it'll do? It'll reveal the temperature in the room. Now, if you're going to change the temperature in the room, a thermometer will never do it. You need a thermostat. Now, you put a thermostat on that wall. Now, you've got to have power. You've got to have a battery. You've got to have a plug. You know, you've got to plug in a thermostat. But you give it power, and you know what? That thermostat changes everything in the room. God didn't save you to be a thermometer and just reveal Christianity in your culture. 
God saved us to be a thermostat. And God's already set that thermostat by His Word. The plumb line is God's Word. And you know what? When we're set, when we're not fickle and jumping here and there and changing our views all the time, when we're set in our life and we know what God's Word says and we endeavor to live it, you know what? We can change the culture around us. And that's what God intends for us. So we see the fearful and we see the flabby and we see the fickle. And maybe you've seen yourself in some of those. I do. But let's see the final group. Here's where we want to be, and that's the faithful. Now go back to chapter 14. Let's catch it all up, starting in verse number 4. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over into the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sina. The forefront of the one was situate northward over against Michmash, and the other southward over against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to say by many or by few. And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee. Behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Now we've got to pause there a minute. Think about this armor bearer. He's one of the no-namers in the Bible. I, I just finished a final proof of some Sunday school curriculum I've written on the no-namers in the Bible. And this is one of the chapters. We don't know this guy's name. He's just an armor-bearer of Jonathan. And Jonathan says to this young man, let's go in. Let's see what the Lord will do. And this armor-bearer says, Jonathan, do all that's in your heart. I'm with you. You know, I've never been a pastor of a church. I have no desire to be. (laughs) I'm kind of like Paul Levine. They asked him one time, you ever want to be a pastor? He said, no. They said, why not? He said, I never met a pastor I didn't feel sorry for. (laughs) And so it's kind of the way I feel. I've never been a pastor. Uh, I've never baptized anybody. That, That might surprise you, but I have no authority to baptize anybody. Okay? Baptism is a local church ordinance. And the pastor oversees the ordinances. And so sometimes, when pastor chapel, my kids got saved. He said, you want to baptize your kids? I said, no, I'm not the pastor. You are. Uh, so I've never baptized anybody. And I have a better memory than the Apostle Paul. He couldn't remember how many he baptized. But I know I've only been in the baptistry one time. And that's when I got saved, got baptized myself. But anyway, I've never been a pastor. Okay? Now, I've been a member of a Baptist church since I got saved. My wife and I, since we've been married, we've been members of three different independent Baptist churches. Right now, we are the members of Lancaster Baptist Church in Lancaster, California. We've been members there for 24 years. You know what? Sometimes Pastor Chapel, he makes some decisions that I go, really? We're going to do that? I, I remember when, years ago, we needed a gym. We, we just had a little Cracker Jack gym. We couldn't get all our students in there to watch basketball games. We'd have to tell them to come. You know, you come the first half, you come the second half. I mean, we couldn't get in there. The students them all. And we kept praying and praying. We knew it was going to cost a lot of money to build a gym. And, and we, we thought up some plans and kind of put some things on paper. But we, there was no way. There was just no way. And uh, we kept praying and praying for almost a decade. And uh, finally, we, we, we had some plans. We kind of got them checked. And and uh, we found out this, this building was going to cost $4.5 million. Well, 
We kind of sat on that for a couple more years. And one day, kind of out of the blue, Pastor Chapel said, it's time to build the gym. And I thought, now? Well, we had no money. Uh, and we knew it was going to cost $4.5 million. Unemployment at that time in Lancaster was 17%. We had 42 families in our church that were out of work. I know because we met with them every Monday morning, gave them coffee and donuts and prayed with them. But they'd get a job. 42 families. And he said, now's the time. And I thought, I don't think so. But you know what? I'm never going to give an account of the leadership of Lancaster Baptist Church. I'm going to give an account of how I followed it. And our people said, Pastor, if God's leading you to do that. And remember, we'd prayed about this for about 12 years. And if God's in this and God's leading you, let's do it. By the time we got that thing built, it cost $11 million. Prices went up. And, and, and we added a couple things to it. <laughs> you know, we, as we kind of redesigned it and kind of fiddled with it, it, it went up a little bit in cost, $11 million. But you know what? When it was built and finished, it was paid for. And unemployment was the lowest it had ever been in Lancaster. And we had no families in a church membership of 9,000 that were without work. I didn't understand it. But you know what? God has given leadership in our lives. Children, you have parents. Be careful about saying, I don't want to do that. Be careful about disobeying your parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. You won't always understand the rules your parents have, but just obey because they're your authority. And in a church, we now, certainly we should pray for our pastor. Pray that he'll have wisdom. Pray that he'll have discernment, that he'll know the will of God. And just being around him the little bit I have, I know he's a, he's a man that, that takes seriously pastoring you folks. But pray for him. But, but as the Lord leads him, like Jonathan's armor bearer here, whatever's in your heart, pastor, I'm with you. Right? Well, I'm sure the next question of this armor bearer was, what are we going to do? Right? Okay, I'm with you. What are we going to do? Well, let's find out. Verse uh, number 8. Then said Jonathan, behold... We will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. <laughs> Jonathan says, hey, let's go in and take these guys. Arbor says, I'm with you, Jonathan. Let's do it. What are we going to do? Well, we're going we're gonna to stand up and let them see us. We're going to do what now? <laughs> we're going to stand up and let them see us. Uh, can I change my vote? <laughs> you know. What? Next verse. If they say thus unto us, verse 9, tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, we will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, come up unto us, then we'll go up. For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. Hey, did you know that Gideon is not the only person in the Bible who threw out a fleece? This is a major fleece. Jonathan says, we're going to stand up. Remember, there's 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, soldiers you can't even number. There's two guys here. And Jonathan says, we're going to stand up, we're going to let them see us, and if they say, halt, don't move, we're going back down. God's not in it. But if they say, hey, you, come here, 
we're going in. God's given them to us. That's a fleece. That's putting it all in the hand of God, isn't it? That's saying, I don't know, I don't have any way to win this, but I'm putting it all in the hand of God. That's faith. Okay? So what happens? Verse 11, and both of them discovered themselves under the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they'd hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us. We'll show you a thing. <laughs> Bad thought. And Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. They no more than said, Get over here. And Jonathan said, Let's go, man. They're ours. Put a fork in them. They're done. Put a W in the wind column. We got them. You talk about faith. They haven't even fought yet. There's no battle going on here yet. But Jonathan is confident we're going to win because God is in this. God is going to work for us. So they go in. And Jonathan, verse 13, climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within, as it were, in half acre of land, which the oak of oxen might plow. Now, I hope there's some video of this in heaven. I mean, Jonathan's got a sword. There's only two swords in the entire army of Israel. Only two. Jonathan has one and Saul has one. Saul uses his to kill himself later. Jonathan takes the sword in his hand, and he goes in, and in an acre, a half acre of land, he kills 20 of these Philistines. That'd be fun to watch. One guy takes out 20. His arm bears right there, you know, helping, fighting these guys, and he kills 20 guys. I'm impressed. You know what? God will use what you have in your hand. See? Yes, we must trust God. Yes, our faith is in God. But God says to Moses, what's in your hand? Oh, it's just a stick. Take that stick. What's in your hand, David? Ah, oh, it's just a slingshot. Give it to me. Watch me use it. What's in your hand, Jonathan? Well, I got a sword. Well, go in and start fighting. Some of you have talent. You have ability. You have influence. You have opportunity. Use it. That's what thrills me about these kids playing these instruments. They're using what, what they have in their hand. Well, I'm impressed. He kills 20 guys. The problem is there's still 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and 20 less than the sand on the sea in multitude. So, uh, verse uh, 15, and there was a trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled, and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah, Benjamin, looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went on beating down one another. Then said Saul to the people that were with him, Number now, and see who's gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said unto Ahiah, Bring hither the ark of God, for the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. And it came to pass, while Saul talked unto the priest, that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said unto the priest, Withdraw that hand. Hey, uh, Jonathan could kill 20 guys, but only God can bring an earthquake. It may be that God will work for us, and boy, did he ever. He brings this trembling of the earth. There's an earthquake, and suddenly these Philistines, they get so confused, they started, they started killing each other. And a great victory is won because of the faith of two men. Do you have faith tonight? Are you faith 
full? Are you full of faith? But sometimes we think, yeah, I, I think I have faith. I, I, I want to serve God. I, I want to see victories, but do I have to do it all by myself? I mean, have you ever thought about if everybody that ever got saved at Royal View Baptist Church was still here, what a great congregation we'd have? You know, you ever wonder, well, if everybody that ever was a member of Royal View at one time would just get their act together spiritually and get back in church, man, could we ever do something? And sometimes we think, why do I have to be the only one with faith? Why am I the only one in my family that has any faith? Why am I the only one in the church that has any faith? Why am I the only one that believes we can still have revival? Why, why, why is it just me? Oh, oh, hold on, the story's not over. Look what happens when two men exercise faith. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> and Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves, and they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there's a very great discomfiture. When Jonathan and his armor bearer, by faith, go into this battle and win, here come the flabby back to the battle. Look at verse 21. We already read it. Here come the fickle. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So here come the fickle back to the battle. Verse 22. Likewise, all the men of Israel which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. Here came the fearful. You know what? Your faith affects somebody else in the battle. I told you when I was a teenager, I was, I was struggling with, with doing God's will. And God began to deal with me. And I told the teenagers Saturday, God put me in a hospital my senior year in high school. And I laid flat on my back, unable to move for three months. But I got bitter. I got angry at God for taking away some things in my life. And I went from sitting on the edge of that bed five seconds a day to working out 17 hours a day to take that football scholarship and go play football. But God kept taking away and taking away and taking away and taking away. And finally, I was, I was playing in a baseball league, trying to get myself back into condition to, to, to go to college and play football. And I was playing baseball. My doctor didn't know it. <laughs> But after a game one night, we were walking off the field, and I was walking off with one of my unsaved friends. His name was Larry. Larry was a, he was a Roman Catholic. He did not profess to know Christ as Savior. He, he uh, was a good kid, but he was a friend, and we were, we were walking off the field together, and it was August 1st, my spiritual birthday. Walking off that field, and Larry said to me, John, where are you going to college? I said, I don't know, Larry. I don't know. I lost my scholarship. They said it would be there for me next year if I can get my health back, but I lost my scholarship. and I've taken all the tests at Madison Area Technical College to get into data processing. I've passed all the tests, but I haven't been accepted. Classes start in two weeks. I, I'm not accepted. So I, I guess I'll just get a job and do whatever. And that unsafe friend, he kind of stopped out there in right field, I remember. 
And he looked at me and he said, well, you could always go to Maranatha. Now, Maranatha was a Baptist Bible college in my hometown. Started my sophomore year in high school. My sister was a student there. I hated that place. There were 211 students at Maranatha the first year, and they were all on the streets of Watertown, my hometown, witnessing to my friends. And then my friends would come back to school the next day and say, Hey, Gatch, uh, uh, are, you, are you a Baptist like those marijuana Baptist Bible college kids? They didn't know how to say Maranatha. They said marijuana Baptist Bible. But they said, Are you like them? And I, oh, I didn't like that. I didn't like that. But I, I don't remember if I said anything to Larry, but I got to my car, and I remember sitting in that car thinking, This is weird. I mean, I know my pastor wants me to go to Bible college. I, I know my Sunday school teacher, my parents. I, 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 there's people praying for me I'll go to Bible college, but my unsafe friend? <laughs> and I sat there in that car and I said, okay, God, I'll make you a deal. I'll go up to Maranatha tomorrow and I'll put in an application. I already got one in at Madison Tech. Whichever one comes back first, that's where I'll go. So, that's what I decided to do, and I went home, and the next morning I got up, went up to Maranatha, and I walked in the main hall there, and the academic dean was standing there, and he said, uh, hi, John. He said, what can I do for you? I said, like an ap application. He said, for what? <laughs> I was not a hot prospect for Bible college, okay? I said, uh, for the college. Well, after we revived him, he, he found an application, I filled it out, and I left. Two days later, went to my mailbox, Two letters, one from Maranatha, one from Madison Tech, both accepting me. And God said, just as clearly to me as I'm talking to you right now, I don't do deals. You know what I want, and you either do what I want or I'm going to kill you. I mean, you'd come within five seconds of killing me already, so I, I like living. So I said, okay, I'll go to Bible school. Well, now I had to tell my parents. Now, that wasn't going to be a problem in the sense of their resisting it. I, I knew they'd be very happy about it. That was the problem. I didn't want a lot of emotion. Okay, I don't want any hugs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Just let me go. Okay, just let me go to Bible college. I'm going to go. I don't want to go, but I want to live, so just let me go. Okay. So I, I thought, when, when do I tell them? And several days went by, and one day we were in the car. My dad was driving. My mom was in the front seat. I was in the back behind my dad. My brother, who's nine years younger than me, he was in the back seat. I don't know what he was doing. I didn't pay attention to him in those days. Anyway, we were, we were at a stoplight at 4th Street. There on, uh, we were going west on Main Street. We were stopped at the stop-and-go light on 4th Street, and the light was red. My dad was, was sitting there with his hands on the steering wheel in the 10-and-2 position, staring at the light, waiting for it to turn green. My mom was in the passenger side in the front seat. She was slightly tilted toward my dad. Her hands were in her lap, kind of in the meek and mild position. Like I said, I don't know what my brother was doing, but I was behind my dad, and I thought, you know, this is a good time. This would be a good time because there's, there's a seat here. They can't get to me. We're out in public, you know. They won't make a scene. So this would be a good time. So I, I, I kind of leaned forward. We didn't have to wear seat belts in those days. I, I kind of leaned forward in the seat, and I, I said, uh, Dad, Mom, I'm, I'm going to go to Bible college. My dad never flinched. <laughs> he just stared at the light with his hands on the stream. My mother, 
It was like she wasn't even breathing, just sitting there, meek and mild to faith. I thought, well, they didn't hear me. So I scooted up a little further, raised my voice a little bit. I said, Dad, Mom, I'm, I'm going to go to Bible college. My dad. My mom. I thought, are these people deaf? <laughs> I grabbed that front seat. I pulled my head up between them. And I said, Dad, Mom, I'm going to Bible college. My dad. My mom turned her head maybe an inch and made eye contact with me. And she said, John, we already knew that. We've been praying for that for years. I slumped back in the back seat. I thought, I never had a chance. I never had a chance. Hey, you know why I'm here 50 years later? Not because of my faith. I had none. I had absolutely none. I had no faith that I could ever do what I've just done in the last 40 minutes. I had no faith that I could ever serve God. None. I am here tonight, 50 years later, because of the faith of my mom and dad. Now, here's my question for you. Who's going to be sitting in this row a month from now because of yours? Which one of these teenagers or young people is going to be in Bible college and maybe be on a mission field someday because of your faith? We need some faithful soldiers in God's army. And how God blesses that. How He blesses that. What kind of soldier are you? It's easy to be fearful. It's easy to be flabby. It's easy to be fickle. But it's going to take some determination and God's grace to be faithful. But we can be. We can be. And I pray we can and will.